Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 62 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson. He's best known for his novel Red Mars and its sequels, which deal with the terraforming of Mars. Other works include the Science in the Capital series, about the future of humanity's attempts to deal with climate change, and the Years of Rice and Salt, an alternate history novel in which Europe is so ravaged by the Black Plague that it never rises to global prominence. His latest novel, 2312, looks ahead 300 years to a future in which mankind is spread throughout the solar system. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Tobias Pakel joins us to discuss ecological themes in fantasy and science fiction. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Kim Stanley Robinson. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Good to be here, dude. Okay, so first of all, your new novel is called 2312. So what's that about? Well, we're in the year 2012, and I decided I wanted to go out a long way, at least for me. The two things I postulated that I think make it workable as a realistic kind of fantasia is space elevators on Earth and self-replicating machinery. And these are two supposedly possible engineering feats that are discussed in the literature, so they're not physically impossible. They might be hard engineering feats, but it seems like they could be done, and there are even companies working on at least the space elevator, the self-replicating factories are somewhat of a stretch at this point, but not obviously impossible. So with those two technologies in hand, people get off planet substantially and begin to colonize the asteroid belts and Mars, Venus, really almost everything that has a land surface or can be given an interior surface because the asteroids are hollowed out and then spun up so that they serve like the old O'Neill colonies from the 70s, where you live inside something that protects you from cosmic rays, and also you've got an artificial G in there from the spin, and might be healthier inside those things than out on the planetary surfaces and the and the big moons that we have. But I postulate a really robust inhabitation of the solar system while also making the point somewhere along the way, that the stars are too far away. And that is, if you don't give yourself faster than light travel, which I don't think we'll ever have, then you have to um, point out that this solar system is basically our effective human neighborhood and play space. So it's a solar system-wide novel, and I wanted to be comprehensive and and go from inside Mercury to the vulcanoid asteroids that might be in there, uh, out to Pluto and Charon. And then who's the protagonist? Well, there are two in my mind, because the novel really began when I had an idea that I wanted to, to tell the story of a relationship, a romance between a mercurial character and a Saturnine character, using the kind of astrological notions of of character coming from what part of the zodiac you were born under, etc., etc. And if you know anything about that system, you know that the mercurial character is very mercurial, and Saturnine is, uh, we've lost the sense of that word a little bit, but it's still very dour and phlegmatic and cool. 
being so far away from the sun and all. And so once I wanted that story, uh, that's why I had to do the civilization that would inhabit the Mercury and Saturn to make the joke work. Because the Mercurial character is from Mercury, naturally, and the Saturnine one from Saturn. So those two characters are kind of diplomats in any place they're in a class of people who zip around the solar system doing things a lot. And they get involved in a mystery of, of who's endangering some of these space settlements. Okay, so I mean, you said that the book takes place in a future in which the entire solar system is colonized. Now, I've heard people say, you know, that the Sahara Desert and the bottom of the ocean are both much more hospitable environments than other planets in our solar system, and no one's living there. So why should we expect anyone to want to live on other planets? Uh, What do you think about that? If we technologically solve the problem of getting out of our own gravity well and protecting ourselves from the elements out there, then it's not grotesquely different from living in Antarctica. You couldn't live in Antarctica without uh, technological cover at all times. You'd quickly be dead without it. And it's not very many people that live out there. And I have to say immediately that my space civilization, although spectacular and interesting, I think, is not numerous compared to the people who are still living on Earth. But in my book, Earth has been thrashed by climate change as about a 35 or 40 foot higher sea level, and that has caused enormous problems that are not truly dealt with 300 years from now. So things we're doing now have impacted that world there. And the space project is conceived of then as now as being a way to help the getting along on Earth successfully and sustainably. And in the book, um, I postulated that it could even be used as a source of food and raw materials that we're running out of, et cetera, et cetera, that it be a resource uh, um, as such, even of animals that are going extinct. So a kind of inoculant or a refugia. That space is being um, colonized in part to help Earth get over its stupendous overshoot. Uh, so in the book, you have people living on Mercury in a city called Terminator. Uh, where did that idea come from? Well, it came from myself back in the 1970s. I've um, lifted it from my first novel that I uh, finished, although it was the third novel I published, uh, The Memory of Whiteness. And uh, the idea being that once we discovered that Mercury r- rotates, we also realized it rotates at a very slow speed, about a walking pace, so that I thought to myself, if a city were like a train, uh, except enormously big and put on many tracks, that it could roll west in front of the sunrise and be driven, in fact, by the expansion in the tracks of the sunrise so that there wasn't much energy involved. It's just being pushed by the sun off into the night and stays in the Terminator, the zone between light and dark, which on Mercury is irregularly wide, let's put it that way, because Mercury has such a bumpy surface. And it always struck me as a beautiful image. I've used it in a story, Mercurial, and in the end of Blue Mars. And there are now terraforming textbooks that say, you know, Mercury is hopeless, but there's this notion of Kim Stanley Robinson's um, expressed in books before. You can only really plagiarize from yourself uh, with a good conscience, and so I've never hesitated to lift from earlier work of mine if I liked it and if it seemed like it was suitable. And this this seemed like the perfect way to start off a solar system-wide novel. Mercury has, unlike the asteroids or any of the outer planets, it has a, a gigantic load of rare earths and rare minerals and rare metals. 
There's also something romantic about it to be that close to the sun on the innermost planet and also have all of the craters named after artists, writers, composers, painters. The International Astronomical Union, when they decided to name Mercury after the first flybys um, in the late 60s, early 70s, I believe, it was a great idea because you look at the maps of Mercury and think, wow, I'd like to be between, you know, Homer and Sibelius or on the north side of Mahler, or watch where Van Gogh crashes into the rim of Cervantes, etc., etc. It goes on and on like that to the point where you can get a little artistic high just looking at the maps. When you actually have the the colonists on Mercury, a lot of them just spend all their time walking, sort of walking beside the city. And I mean, you're a, a hiker yourself, I, I understand. Is that something that appeals to you, that kind of lifestyle? Yes, it sure does. <laughs> You've got me there. I I love to spend as much time as I can walking in the Sierra Nevada of California. And through the course of my life, I've gotten very homed in on my home range so that I don't hunger for the other mountain ranges of the world like I used to when I was young. I just want to go up there. I see a lot of people who are like that, people who are actually much more intense about it than I am, because for me, it's a casual hobby of only a couple few weeks a year, but for some people, it's a way of life. And I thought, well, this is a neat human impulse, and if you could walk and stay permanently in the sunset, a circumambulation around Mercury would be a cool thing to do. And, you know, we have so many extreme athletics right now on this Earth. There's uh, the wonderful Ross Savage who rows across oceans by herself, and uh, there's all kinds of endurance athletics going on as people get a sufficiency and feel secure and comfortable in their lives. They like to do things with their bodies, and I'm very sympathetic to that crowd, which is kind of opposed to the virtual reality slash singularity crowd that we see more of in science fiction. I've heard you say that you're skeptical of the idea that a technological singularity might occur anytime soon. Uh, Why is that? I think it's a misunderstanding of the the brain and of computers, in effect. We are underestimating how complex the brain is and how little we understand it. And we're overestimating how much our computers might have a will or intention. I think the intention will always stay with us, and the machines will be search engines and um, adding machines, enormously powerful and fast binary digital things, but they're not going to do the singularity as I understand it, as in this notion that machines will take off on their own and leave us behind. I think it's some of this sort of what I call MIT-style public relations, quote, futurology, which is just lame science fiction where people are asserting that it's really going to come true. And as a science fiction writer, I, I find that a little bit offensive because nobody knows what's really going to come true. And people who declare it is are instantly putting themselves in the fraud category. They're claiming more than they can. Now, to come back to the singularity, I think what's useful in it is the idea of it as a metaphor. It's a science fiction metaphor. And even if it will never come true in a literal sense, it might be a good way of talking about the way things feel already so that I've been saying, yeah, the singularity, if if it ever is going to happen, it actually happened back in 2008 with the financial crash. Because what happened there, nobody quite understands. And it was a really super complex system that involves computers, algorithms, laws, habits, and traditions. And all them combined on a global system made a financial system that no one person understood or controlled. So that's 
almost kind of like the singularities. You know, our financial system has actually blown up in our face, and and none of us understand it, and yet it does control the world. Well, I mean, speaking of the financial crisis, you know, in our last episode, we interviewed Paul Krugman. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask him about was this idea, like in Star Trek, that there's no capitalism uh, in the future. And actually, in your 2312, you have a no capitalism in outer space. Could you just talk about why you think that that might happen and what you think might be the alternative? When I went to Antarctica, what I was noticing was that um, when you're in Antarctica, it looks like you are in a non-capitalist system because all the scientists and workers down there are, for the time they're there, in a non-money economy where you just are given your clothes, you go into the galley, you eat the food that's made for you. It's all uh, non-monetary except when you go into the post office and you buy some trinkets perhaps to send back home. So it was only unnecessary stuff like toys that were in a money economy and the rest of it was just being provided for you. And I thought the first space stations possibly will uh, resemble the South Pole. And that's always uh, struck me very strongly. I feel like, gosh, I sort of visited a space station, except I didn't have to mess with the spacesuits uh, exactly, or I could still breathe the air because I was at the South Pole rather than in space. So following up that thought, I thought, well, as they develop up there, what will happen? They're not truly outside of capitalism because capitalism is their bubbles within it, you might say. And I thought, well, maybe that's how it will develop, the transition to the next economic system, especially if capitalism can't properly price what we're doing on Earth and wrecks the Earth, that it might transition in, in, um, in space first and then have to work its way back into Earth in a tail-wagging-the-dog type manner. So all my many of my space colonies are simply colonies in that very definite meaning of the word of some earthly nation state, but some of them are semi-autonomous, and uh, Mars, after it declares independence, um, begins to protect some of the outer satellite colonies from interference from anywhere else, etc., etc. So I, I ran a history that got into an economic system that was in space rather uh, cooperative and using really fast computers to try to even calculate things outside of a market. This is a tricky area because it's very poorly theorized and it isn't certain. Um, the people who studied it clearly seem to find that there are recomplicating issues that come up so fast that even the most powerful computers might not be able to handle it. But I have quantum computers in this book, very small but extremely powerful quantum computers. And at that point, factoring and all kinds of computer-type operations are speeded up amazingly. Like 100 billion years, factoring a thousand-figure number drops to like 20 minutes. And that kind of scale shift made me think, maybe we could let computers run the economy. And it's a very much of a question rather than a statement. Well, and you sort of call this system sort of the Mondragon Accord. Is that based on the real thing? Yes, there is in Spain, in the Basque part of Spain, a town called Mondragon that is um, runs as a system of nested co-ops, including the bank, which is simply a credit union run by, owned by everybody. So it's a town of only 50 to 100,000, and they're all Basques, more or less, and they don't intend to leave the city. So there are reasons why capitalist economists want to say that it can't possibly work for all the rest of us. But I'm not so sure. 
And I, what I wanted to do was scale it up and show uh, a Mondragon-style system working amongst all the space colonies in one giant collective of cooperatives. 2312, it also features a visit to a future New York where the sea levels have risen 30 feet and Manhattan is now a city of canals like Venice. Uh, how realistic of a scenario is that? Well, good question. Um, and not only, it's not just me that can't answer it, but also the ice scientists of the world. We've got a, a massive amount of ice perched on Greenland, way further south than it should be. It's really a remnant of the old ice cap of the Ice Age 11,000 years ago, like one of the last remnants, like the Columbia Plateau in British Columbia and Alberta. So there it sits, and it's melting fast as could be, but we don't know how fast, because it doesn't have to melt outright. It has to just slide into the sea, where it melts in about six months, no matter how much it is. So the question is, is how slippery is it? And the same is true of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, which rests on ground that is actually below sea level. So if it slips, uh, if it gets lifted, etc., the West Antarctic Ice Sheet could come off a lot faster than just melting outright. For that reason, the glaciologists of the world are just throw up their hands when they say, I mean, 300 years is long enough that we could indeed have a 40-foot sea level. Rise. If we release the methane, if we don't get hold of our carbon burn, if the methane comes off of the floors of the ocean, et cetera, et cetera, out of the permafrost, then we could cook this planet. And the total ice loss, if you were to lose all of it, you have sea level rise of 270 feet. Like a 270 foot increase, what would that, what's at, what's at 270 feet above sea level? Well, you wouldn't have Florida, but the Florida is even lower than that. At least a third of the world's population lives in that zone. I mean, there are homes in Beverly Hills that are 500 feet above sea level, so it is not a question of how close are you to the ocean. But there are also the Central Valley of California, like where I live, although I'm 100 miles inland, I'm only 35 feet above sea level, and the whole Central Valley of California is uh, low enough to become an inland sea again, as it has been in the past. So it just depends on what kind of coastline you have. A drowned coastline, which is what they call the eastern half of the United States, because after the Ice Age ended, it was two or 300 feet lower at the Ice Age in 11,000 years ago, and it's been rising ever since, so they call the East Coast a drowned coastline. Well, it'll probably drown more. I mean, the, mall, the National Mall of Washington, D.C. is only 10 feet above sea level. <laughs> there was one observation in this book, actually, that had never really occurred to me before, but it was that if sea levels rise significantly, there would be no more beaches. <laughs> Anywhere, you know, anywhere on Earth. Yeah, that is a sad thought for a beach boy like myself. That occurred to me back in Green Mars when I had the West Antarctic ice sheet come off to enable my Martians to have their revolution. So, you know, a million or two more million years, you have beaches again, but it's a cold comfort. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you wrote a series of novels called The Science in the Capital about the future of humanity's efforts to address climate change. To what extent was your goal with those books to actually change people's minds? And do you have any idea about whether or not you did change anyone's minds? I did write those books to try to point out a danger and what we could do about it now. And so I wanted them to be a kind of an alert, the way science fiction often wants to do. Uh, there's a, such a thing called topic saturation where people don't want to hear about it anymore because it's been so much in the news since about 2004. And it's like, a novel about it is maybe the last thing that you want to read, including me. I don't want to read much more about climate change after the last 10 years. 
But I also think that when people did go ahead and dive in and give the books a chance, that they had a good time, that they had an entertaining, thought-provoking experience. I see now, after some years have passed, that they did get read, and they have been remembered, and people discuss them. I'm going down to UC San Diego to talk to a class about the first volume tomorrow, and it's often brought up by uh, scientists who are working in these various fields, or at least there are scientists who want to read science fiction that still says something to the way their careers actually work and feel. I think it's important to add that we shouldn't freak out about this, but there's a certain apocalyptic element in this, like, oh, my God, we're going to cook the planet, we're all going to die, and, and this is the worst crisis of all times. In fact, it's kind of slow motion. It's something that is amenable to um, laws and changing technologies and, and economics. It isn't going to require us to all become nuns and saints. It may be that it's sort of like shifting from cassette tapes to CDs to digital music that we will technologically move into just better, cheaper, cleaner energy sources and we will look back on climate change as a as a scary possibility that we dodged most of. Uh, so 2312 uh, includes references to a historical event called the Accelerando. Is that a reference to the Charles Strauss novel? <laughs> no, the Charles Strauss novel is a reference to Blue Mars. Uh, at least I, I've been told that. I haven't been, had that confirmed by Charlie himself, but um, I did get there first. So whether he knew about me or not, I don't have to worry about it. Because uh, at the end of Blue Mars, they go through the Accelerando. And uh, there's a section of Blue Mars where it kind of shoots off. The novel gets off far enough into the future that things go off into the solar system in a way that somewhat resembles 2312, so that you could even think of 2312 as being about a hundred years after the end of Blue Mars, and although they don't, Mars does not have the same history, um, nor Earth, they're parallel enough that you could think of it as a kind of spiritual uh, successor. So once again, I lifted from myself, and I was really pleased when Strauss uh, titled his novel that, because for people who know enough about uh, science fiction or who have read the Mars trilogy, they'll see that, that I had the idea, or I got the name. I think the idea is kind of the common science fiction idea that we might begin to accelerate in our changes. That's a sort of Frederick Pohl idea almost. Day million. I think I heard you say once that you'd had one totally original science fiction idea, and that was in your novel Icehenge, where you presented this idea that immortals would have to selectively erase their memories in order to keep the number of memories manageable. Is that right? Well, that isn't exactly how that works in Icehenge. What I, what, painfully, what I really was thinking was if we had longevity, that our memories not, might not be able to keep up with it. And um, the older I get, the more I think that might be right. In Icehenge, they were living fine in 600 years. I was old as a young man, and yet they were only remembering like the, a few childhood memories that were really stuck, and then the last 50 years, and so they were cruising through life with big gaps in what they had done, you know, two, three hundred years before. So that's how that one worked. And that was a an idea of my own that I hadn't seen expressed before. I think by now I might have had a, a couple few more original science fiction ideas um, in the sense of the alternative history idea for the years of rice and salt, I think is a good one in my own. But I am mostly someone who looks at the tradition and loves it and tries to 
do my own alterations on it and express it in my own way i don't i don't feel like a a visionary well i think that's interesting because uh, i was really struck in the encyclopedia of science fiction the entry for gene wolf describes him as possibly the greatest living science fiction writer but says that he's arguably never come up with an original science fiction idea yeah well and also you think of shakespeare a uh, uh, tinkering around with a bunch of old plays. I mean, he's not an original thinker in the, in any way, shape, or form. And Gene Wolfe is a good comparison to Shakespeare, much better than me, in that he loves science fiction and takes all of the dumb old ideas and under the inspiration of Marcel Proust has kind of Proustified um, all the pulp ideas that are out of our genre uh, most gloriously. Yeah, so speaking of Gene Wolfe, uh, notice references in 2312 to Gene Wolfe's uh, Return of the World and Samuel R. Delaney's Dahlgren. Um, why did you decide to put those references in there? Well, they're two of my favorite writers and, and two of my teachers when I was at Clarion in 1975 and two of the people I've read all through their whole careers and two human beings whom I, I, I revere and feel like they're exemplary figures. It's always fun to reference them, but also when the opportunity comes up. In 2312, I played a couple of little games where I was sneaking in science fiction novel titles as ordinary phrases um, all over the place. And then also um, there were references back to classic science fiction literature since people are in the solar system. I thought, well, maybe they will think of it as being the clunky old stories of our ancestors about these situations and refer back to them somewhat. So I felt free to make those kind of references, and I did it a lot, and it was fun. So what are some of the other uh, passing references in the book that, that might be worth mentioning? Well, I, I keep running across little titles like Ken McLeod's Learning the World, which is a, such a beautiful title, and um, I had a phrase uh, of a Banksian sublimity for a huge interior space that was like one of his uh, culture novels. But when he agreed to give a blurb for the novel in England, he pointed out that it would look like log rolling for me to be um, hmm. mentioning him inside the novel and, and requested that I uh, pull the, the uh, reference, which I did. But actually, there is no good replacement for the adjective Banksian. <laughs> Because <laughs> for those of us who read Banks, it's a, it's a very particular quality that no one other adjective can can uh, replace. Uh, so you mentioned that in 2312, there are these characters who are quantum computers. And a couple times, the issue of decoherence comes up as a problem for them. Could you explain what is decoherence and why is that an issue for the quantum computers? Yeah, well, I can explain it at my English major level. I'd love to have one of the experts actually talk about this, but they try to get a molecule or some other qubit of some indetermined uh, substance at this point of what would make the best qubits into a superposed state so that in quantum terms it is uh, both or all values at once and occupying even multiple universes, you know, to the extent you can comprehend what that means. And then when it decoheres, it breaks down into, like when Schrodinger's cat is determined to be either dead or alive, it breaks down to a normal moment of either or, and you don't have those superposed states. So a quantum computer, you want the superposed states because that's where you can use these uh, superpositions for calculating. And if they if it drops into the either or state before you're done with your calculation, then you simply have lost it. So in my 
book, what I postulate is that we haven't got very far with that problem because it strikes me as a really severe problem and that quantum computers might be one of these things that is always 30 years away or always 50 years away and we never really get closer because of the problems involved with the technology. Not sure about that because so many things do get done and the quantum computer people are pretty cheerful about the prospects. But in my book, they've only gotten to like 30 qubit quantum computers and even those are amazingly powerful, but you can't make them any bigger or more powerful or they'll start decohering frequently and you don't get anything out of them. So the the first book of yours that I ever read was called Escape from Kathmandu, which I remember being fairly lighthearted. It's sort of hikers who befriend Bigfoot. And it seems like a departure to me from a lot of your other books that are very sweeping and ambitious. And I'm just wondering if there's a funny story behind how you came to write this sort of humorous book. I don't know how funny the story is, but my wife and I did go to Nepal in 1985. And while we were there, we were laughing our heads off every day. Strange things kept happening to us, including running into Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, because they too were on their way to see Mount Everest and with all their Secret Service agents. And immediately, uh, uh, like within an hour, I thought, I said to my wife, boy, I should use that in a story, because that was strange. Because there was Jimmy Carter's face right next to us in Namchi Bazaar, which was like the last place on earth you would expect to see such a familiar face from all the magazines and TVs, having never seen him in person. It was just bizarre to see his truly human, uh, friendly face there in this bizarre context. So once I started writing those stories, I began to realize uh, we had had a very beautiful two months there. Our treks were filled with friendliness and a sort of a pilgrimage feeling, like the Canterbury Tales or any pilgrimage. That is a special walk. You walk with other people and you aren't necessarily uh, companion with them every single day or hour, but you keep crossing paths with them. And everybody has a spirit that, oh, something great is going on here, something bigger than us. So a pilgrimage is a beautiful thing. And a lot of people do it around the world, but maybe not a whole lot of Americans. So maybe it's just such a minority thing that not many people have realized what a special state it is. So I wanted to write about that feeling, and the main feeling was just uh, that we had loved it and we had a lot, a lot of laughs. Uh, so you said that your story, Prometheus Unbound at Last, contains your prediction for the 21st century that you think is most likely to come true. Uh, can you talk about what that prediction is? Nature Magazine asked me to do one of their last page of nature short stories, which they were doing for a year or two. And I was very pleased to be published in Nature. And But 800 words, my Lord, what a limit for me as a novelist who had sort of lost the habit of short stories. So I decided to do it as a reader's report on a novel so I could summarize an entire scenario and make a lot of jokes. It seemed to me the only way to do it, because I don't know what an 800-word short story is. So having done that, I just predicted that the scientific community was going to insert itself more and more into human policy decisions and that they would do that because it was the best protection for their own descendants and it was a kind of a sociobiology point that just out of concern for our own kids that we will end up making a kind of a scientific slash technological utopia despite the dangers. Since it's almost the only full prediction I've made, it sort of stands as the most likely one <laughs> by default. Okay, and so finally, just uh, are there any other new or upcoming projects that you're working on that you'd like to mention? 
No, I think you've got it. I mean, in the, uh, you mentioned that best of uh, Kim Stanley Robinson indirectly by talking about the, you know, Prometheus Unbound comments. It must be from that yeah, short yeah. story collection. Yeah, and so that last short story in um, that collection, which I wrote for it about uh, Wilhelm Furtwängler and the Berlin Philharmonic in 1942, that's my most recent short story. And I'm pleased with Jonathan Strahan for pushing me hard to write a new short story for the collection. And so that was a look, that was a cool thing. But that's the last thing that's happened. Okay, great. So Kim Stanley Robinson, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. All right. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you, John. Really a pleasure to be with you guys. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Kim Stanley Robinson for joining us on the show. And as we said, for the second half of the show today, we'll be talking about ecological themes in fantasy and science fiction, and we're joined by a special guest geek, Tobias S. Bakel. He's the author of novels such as Crystal Rain and the New York Times bestselling Halo novel The Cold Protocol. His latest book, Arctic Rising, is a near-future eco-thriller about the struggle to control natural resources made accessible by the melting of the North Polar Ice Cap. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on board. And if you guys don't know who Toby is, you should definitely go listen to episode 56 of Geek's Guys of the Galaxy. Uh, the second half of that show features a fairly in-depth discussion with Toby about his background and his writing. And so the first thing I just kind of want to talk about is, growing up, my parents would tell this story about how when they were in college, they went to a drive-in movie theater that was showing a triple feature. And two of the movies were Soylent Green and Silent Running. And uh, I don't know if you've never seen Soylent Green. It's uh, based on, it's sort of a loosely adapted from a Harry Harrison novel called Make Room, Make Room, about like terrible overpopulation in the future. And so hot showers and strawberry jam are things that only the very wealthy can afford. And life is so miserable that people go to these voluntary euthanasia centers and just have themselves put down. And at these places, they show you movies of what the world used to look like when there were bunny rabbits and grass and stuff like that. And so, so they actually came home from this, from this, and Silent Running is, is sort of a similar sort of thing. And so they came home from these movies and instantly wrote checks to Planned Parenthood and the Sierra Club. So, so I sort of grew up with this idea of science fiction as something that can actually inspire people to try to make the world a better place and, and get involved and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, ecological or environmental science fiction, it, it, I mean, that's probably the the easiest way for, for writers to actually make an impact like that, because I think that's uh, it's probably the most uh, relatable sort of, or, or certainly one of the most relatable subjects science fiction can tackle that people will be able to look and see, like, oh, yeah, like that's what could happen, you know. Do either of you guys feel like science fiction affected your... Did you start recycling or anything after reading any science fiction stories or anything like that? Or did you see it affecting people around you? I was born in 79. And I think that was at the tail end of a lot of the really seriously ecological science fiction that was happening in the 70s. I think during the 80s and 90s, there was less of that. And so it wasn't around me uh, nearly as strongly. And I never saw Soylent Green or Silent Running or Logan's Run until I was actually much older. And so, because I didn't see them when they came out, they did not have that same kind of impact on me because they looked, the, the special effects looked old. The actors who were in them were definitely, you know, they were no longer the, 
current huge stars. And so it was, uh, it was, it definitely did not have that same sort of impact. And, and it's very interesting that, that it died off so much that, that there kind of is a sort of a, a trough in, in the amount of, of works that are trying to interrogate that ecological stuff. And it seems to have come with a bit of uh, a change in something, the zeitgeist, where it was no longer. I think, you know, maybe when you get this moment where, you know, the Jimmy Carter's solar panels are ripped off the roof of the White House and tossed away, you get this uh, sort of feeling that that energy was lost for a while there. So, Toby, you mentioned uh, Logan's Run, and that's actually one of the movies I kind of wanted to talk about. Um if if anyone hasn't seen it, the basic premise, and I haven't seen this since I was a kid, so I might not be remembering this exactly right, but it's sort of uh, the world has been completely ecologically ravaged, and the survivors of humanity kind of live in this bunker city, and because resources are so limited, uh, everyone's limited to, I, th- I believe, a 30-year lifespan, and you have kind of a gem in your hand that changes color to show uh, how old you are. And when it turns black or something, uh, your time is up and, and you kind of get sucked up into the ceiling during a ceremony. One thing I'm going to sorry, I'm going to spoil the ending of this movie. But, you know, what happens is the the main character, he escapes from the city and finds that uh, makes his way outside and finds that everything's great outside and that the earth has sort of healed itself while humanity has been living underground. And this strikes me as like incredibly phony. And it seems like this, this happens a lot in science fiction movies where, you know, sort of bad science fiction movies where, where this catast- ecological catastrophe is set up, but then it sort of turns out okay in the end in a really contrived way. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't, I didn't actually remember that, uh, that that's how it ended. Although, actually, to be honest, I may not have made it to the end because that movie's, uh, like as Toby was saying uh, earlier, it's it's it doesn't really hold up well to a modern audience viewing. Boy, um, no, it does not. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a pretty hard film to watch. Uh, you know, from from a sort of twenty first century point of view. But you know, uh, do you know? Um, uh, does the book end that way also? I remember the book being uh, that the outside had more of a air of menace to it. But I, it's been so long that I, I cannot remember. And Dave, I think you can probably not worry about spoiling it for people. We've had like what forty years for people <laughs> to get around to seeing it. <laughs> yeah. And hey, if we're gonna if we're not gonna worry about spoiling things, I feel like we should spoil Soylent Green just so that we can you know shout like Charlton Heston does <laughs> in the movie. Soylent Green is people. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So it turns out that at the end, that the people whose bodies are being euthanized in these voluntary euthanasia centers. Oh, okay. So Soylent, uh, everyone on Earth is supposedly being set, fed Soylent, which is some supposedly some sort of soy product. But it's actually, it's people. It's actually their human bodies are being processed into this stuff. So yeah, so at the end, Charlton Heston shouts, it's people. It's made out of people. It's funny, actually, you know, I was, I was just thinking on my drive over today that, you know, Soylent Green and Planet of the Apes yes. uh, both end with Charlton Heston just screaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was the 70s, yeah. man. It was a great end note for a movie. Um, but actually, that reminds me, um, there, was a, there was a great SNL skit that was parodying this. So, I mean, if, uh, if you're a Soylent Green fan, you should look on YouTube, see if you can find that or something. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I saw one one time. It was a parody of that where they were interviewing Charlton, like supposedly, you know, in, in, in the skit, they were interviewing Charlton Heston about Soylent Green. And they're like, and then you tried to do Soylent Brown. That wasn't such a big hit. And, <laughs> and he's like, no, well, then let's, let's show the clip. And he runs out and he's like, Soylent Brown, it's made out of poopy. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then they, and then they cut, you know, back to the interview and they're like, yeah, that, that one, it, did, it just didn't have the same impact, you know? And then he's like, and then you went for a soil and green too. He's like, yeah, well, let's roll the clip for that. And then he runs out and he's like, it's still made out of the people. They didn't change the recipe like they said they were going to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so getting back to Logan's run though, well, the, or, or the sort of like the fake, you know, the, sure, the sort of like. Earth can heal itself. You gotcha. It wasn't yeah. really that bad. That sort of reminds me, too, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the story about the original ending of Blade Runner, the original theatrical ending of Blade sure. Runner. But so what happened is that, you know, they shot Blade Runner, which is real, this really dark, and it's set in this city where it's always this like, acid rain and not everything sucks. And then they showed it um, to, a, they did like a test screening of it. And the whole test screening consisted of teenage girls who were, who had crushes on Harrison Ford after having seen him as Han Solo. You know, so it's like the absolute worst like wrong audience for the movie and so they decided it needed a happy happy all, all the girls were like this should have a happy ending and so they decided to give it a happy ending where you know harrison ford and rachel uh they just drive out of the city and they actually used out, uh, outtakes from the shining where there's just like this car driving through this wilderness and then and then the voiceover harrison ford's like yeah it turns out she didn't actually have a limited lifespan and the earth is great once you leave los angeles and stuff and and that's but that's it's the same thing that's they're like ah who care you know we we set up this whole world of ecological devastation but actually just kidding all right but so another movie i wanted to talk about was water world i like water world <laughs> i actually honestly kind of like it too but I, i've been so disillusioned though because well let me first say you know when it first came out you know it was so cool when you saw the what is it universal logo at the beginning and the earth you see the you know the globe and then before you even quite realize it, you see that the polar ice caps are melting and the seas are rising to cover up all the land. But that really gave me the impression that there actually is enough ice in the polar ice caps, that if they melted, it would cover up the whole Earth in water. So I was really disillusioned when I found out that wasn't true. I mean, like in our interview with Kim Stanley Robinson, he was saying, like, if everything melts, sea levels are going to rise. I think he said 270 feet. Which obviously that's a lot uh, if you're living in Manhattan or something, but it's hardly gonna submerge the Himalayas or whatever. You know. Well, yeah, that's one of those things where uh, I really like the movie, but yeah, the 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 core the core what if is is really out there. Where did all that water come from? <laughs> but all that aside, I, I it's one of it's a, it's a, it's a favorite of mine because 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 i just love all seaborne adventures mm. having grown up on a boat so they're this just these little touches that that are just inside jokes for people who live on or enjoy boats could have done without the dennis hopper character but uh, yeah you know <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i think it's somewhat unfairly maligned because it's not as bad as people say it is but uh yeah i mean the uh, the whole dennis hopper sort of subplot like that part, like, kind of sucks. If you could uh, go through like, and do a recut, like they do with those fan cuts yeah. of Star Wars and stuff like that, if you could do a fan cut of Waterworld where you basically just chop out Dennis Hopper from it, mm -hmm. I would pay money. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so what's in it that us people that didn't grow up on boats are missing? There are a couple moments where he just, uh, you know, when he ducks before the boom comes across, someone gets hit. Uh, I, I've actually done that before because, you you know, you just notice if you've been on a boat, you can feel that the boat is turning. You can feel the wind. You can you can hear it start to move and you know to duck. And uh, at the very end where he just uh, he doesn't like being on the land, it makes him feel seasick. 
You know, like the, the first time I got off a boat after having been on it for a week and hopped on land, I kind of fell over. And it's the same thing. Your inner air has gotten so used to the constant motion, the fact that you've been at sea for a week or so that like for the next day or two, the land just feels incredibly wrong. You can't get your bearings. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, actually, speaking of sort of global warming and sea levels rising and stuff, I, I, I think I heard you say, Toby, that you and Carl Schrader, I think, had sort of been expecting more authors to do something with the polar ice cap melting, um, revealing resources, and you were kind of surprised people weren't tackling that? You know, Carl and I have been having these discussions for years. Like, Carl is a writer I really admire, and he's just, I think he's hes one of those writers who's just a step ahead of, of, of a lot of other people in terms of science fiction. I wouldn't be surprised if just more people discovered, particularly some of his early work, and, you know, held it back up, I hope, um, because his early novels like Ventus and and such are just just packed full of these amazing science fictional ideas. So he and I started talking about the fact that there's just this paucity of exploration about what it means. Because even if you don't believe global warming is anthropogenic, uh, man-made, there is pretty much undeniable evidence on the ground that we're just seeing a complete collapse of the polar ice cap and glaciers and there are all these effects that are happening that are just on record if you want to talk about near future you're going to need to interrogate the second order effects of some of these things and very few people are doing that some of them are scared of the fact that there are lots of vociferous people out there who don't believe in global warming and who will jump down your throat and follow you around the internet and hound you if you try to engage with it. And uh, there are a lot of people out there who also just don't want to deal with it for fear of getting it wrong. And uh, it's just kind of like this just sort of like elephant in the room kind of feeling to it. And I had commented once that one of the reasons I didn't didn't really uh, engage with it much at first was that I just really felt that smarter people than I would come along and start writing stories in the obvious space there. And eventually he and I got around to saying, well, we still haven't seen anyone do a story about like the complete collapse of the North Polar Ice Cap. So you know what? Screw it. Let's, let's do this. Let's write about it. Let's think about it. And we wrote a story, a story together and we just kept talking about it even after writing a short story that it was just such a wide open space. So interesting that, uh, I finally said, Hey, Carl, I mean, I hope, I, I hope you wouldn't mind if I went ahead and did a whole novel because I'm just obsessed with this now that was my novel Arctic rising. And it was just all, you know, as I was uh, launching the book, the actor Lucy Lawless from uh, Xena warrior princess was arrested in Australia. <laughs> I think it was, or New Zealand for chaining herself or, or getting on board one of these Arctic drilling ships. That's a uh, shell or someone like that is getting ready to send up to the North polar ice cap basically. Cause they've gotten to the point now where they feel that there's uh, been enough melting going on up there that, it's time to start drilling, baby. Do you not find it depressing? I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, well, speaking for myself, I mean, like, I can barely stand to think about global warming, let alone read about it, let alone write about it, because it, it just depresses <laughs> me so much. I mean, how do you, is that a factor for you? How do you deal with that? The more science I read, the, the more dismayed I am. You know, it's obvious that we're going to inhabit a very changed Earth. Uh, there's going to be more heavy weather, you know, coastal areas are getting hammered and are going to be continuing to get hammered and it's going to get worse. And that's depressing. But on the other hand, 
there are losers and there are winners in anything like this. And so what happens is if you live on the coast, you're fucked. If you are on small islands, you're going to get screwed. If you're on low-lying islands, you're no longer going to have a home. There's an entire nation that has basically purchased huge tracts of land in Australia and is actually sending their current high school class to Australia to begin to get acclimatized and, and acculturalized and figure out how to navigate the the system there. And then they're going to basically up and move their entire nation to Australia um, because of the rising sea levels, which is so science fictional. And that's obviously where we're going to have losers. And winners are going to be places like Iceland and Greenland. Greenland is is going to get more and more arable land. Siberia, more and more arable land. Russia becomes a winner. Canada becomes the hugest winner. They're going to get deep water ports, a tremendous boom in natural resources as the vast, massive oil fields open up from underneath the ice. And places like Baffin Island uh, are going to become more and more habitable. So what, you're, so what I think you're saying is that the United States should invade Canada immediately before, <laughs> before any of that happens when they're not expecting it. So, John, no. Uh... In your capacity as a short fiction editor, what are you kind of seeing in the way of ecological fiction? I mean, are people writing it? Are they submitting it to you? Are you publishing it? any of it? Like, how's that going? Uh, I haven't been seeing a whole lot of it, actually. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure why that is. Uh, I mean, I know there was a couple of recent anthologies on the subject. One was called Welcome to the Greenhouse, uh, edited by Gordon Van Gelder. You know, it's... Uh, global warming uh, stories although it's actually it's actually interesting because i know gordon um is a you know he believes in global warming and everything and and you know he's a liberal uh viewpoint but um he decided to specifically take the the tactic of of trying to present both sides or you know have authors who who sort of believe both ways like whether they believe in global warming or don't um so some of the stories are, are sort of um have that viewpoint um have, have the you know denier viewpoint and some of them have the you know believer viewpoint and whatnot and uh and there's another one called uh, I'm with the Bears uh edited by Mark Martin um uh which is I believe entirely a reprint anthology but I might be mistaken uh, I know uh Gordon's anthology is uh at least mostly original if not all all original I have to say I really hate the title of I'm with the Bears I kind of want to switch <laughs> it Well I I was looking at, on amazon.com and you know really the only way I I don't have book scan so really the only way I have to gauge how popular books are is how many reviews there are on Amazon both these books only have two reviews, and I thought that was an interesting contrast to your Wastelands anthology, which, I don't know, has like a hundred or something now. And they're very similar themes, right? This sort of world going to hell. And I just wonder, does this say something about the appetite, or lack thereof, for ecological fiction right now, that we have sort of like nuclear holocaust, cool, right? global warming, uh... <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I mean, Wastelands uh, isn't actually specifically nuclear. I mean, it does. It, it's just all all apocalyptic type stuff, and so. But I mean, the cover it looks like a big nuclear bombed city. Sure, sure, but I mean, I think I think that's part of it is that the any any kind of environmental type of anthology like this is it's it's very specific, um, and and I don't and maybe it's a little bit too specific. Like maybe people like you know they would like a good global warming story, but they don't want a whole a whole book of. 20 different global warming stories or something. You know what I mean? Like uh, it, it might be a little, um, a little similar or, or a little too similar from story to story or something, or, or maybe that's what they think. Um, and I think part of it, you know, it's hard to be um, entertaining without uh, being pedantic or something um, or you have to balance that. 
and uh, maybe people just think like, oh, like these are going to be political screeds or, you know, it's going to, you know, right. They, they're the worried that they're not going to be entertaining enough um, w- with all the lessons that you're going to be handed down. And thinking about this, it seems like there are a lot of stories in fantasy and science fiction about nature kind of fighting back. I wonder if this is sort of like a fantasy people have that if na- nature could just, you know, stand up for itself somehow. I mean, like in Lord of the Rings, you have the ants rise up and tear down um, Saruman's uh, factory type uh, setup. And uh, Avatar was the other example I was going to give of, you know, the sort of nature loving natives versus the evil corporate military industrial complex. I think of that as sort of the uh, the pro pastoralist, you know, edge. I think that element is is what uh, drives some people away from wanting to engage with, you know, ecological concerns. That group of people who seem to think that there was this, you know, green Gaia natural environment in which we kind of ran around in that was perfect and Garden of Edenish that we've fallen away from. It's a very secular sort of Garden of Eden morality tale almost with uh the replacement of you know a, a mother earth instead of a, a judeo-christian thing you see that pop up in something like you know lord of the rings where there's a the mordor's armies are all like you know chopping down trees they build machines there's steam power and fire and things going on that are very technological and you know the hobbits who kind of you know have their little cute gardens and, you know, wander through nature and the elves and all those people are the the good people. Well, yeah. And I mean, just this idea of wishing that nature had some sort of defense mechanism or, or, or say in things or something, it kind of makes me wonder, like, should trees get the vote? <laughs> so you really need to read Carl Schrader. He has this concept called uh, thalience which is the idea of basically instead of you know trying to go back to this mystical you know mother earth area what you do is you do give trees the ability to vote and you give them a vote in, in your democracy you know you put down smart dust and intelligent sensors and you hook a stream up to twitter and you you give a river enough computing power and you maybe will be able to give it the ability to advocate for its own needs I mean, does all that stuff depend on us having super advanced technology or are any of the ideas things we, that could actually be implemented now? I, th- I mean, he's writing science fiction. So, you know, the easiest thing, I think, is to assign a, the ability to use the technology. But it certainly makes you think. When I saw the, uh, oh, it, it's, it wasn't the Honduras, but one of the Central American countries' constitutions added constitutional rights to nature within their their rights system. And I, I, I saw that and I flagged it and I thought, aha, that's the first step towards thalians. That's the first step towards what Carl Schrader was talking about. I mean, I was sort of imagining, like, should there be like a special represent, you know, should, should, should there be like 30 members of Congress or something whose job is to look out for the interests of the trees or whatever? And yeah, I think that that actually would be kind of clever. But then you have to be willing to convince your your human constituents that there's a value to nature, uh, because a lot of people would just look at that as you know you're basically uh, raising inanimate objects over us. You know, if we thought the battle for equal rights for 
people who didn't look, you know, Western European was, was hard. You know, wait until we have a battle for the ability of, of nature to be able to have the same rights. <laughs> I was just reading, a th- I think it was in a David Brennan interview, I'm not sure about this, but he was saying that, you know, with our, it, it, that it's, it's not hard to imagine that in coming decades or centuries that we'll be able to enhance the intelligence of animals to bring them up to sort of conscious levels. And should we be thinking, you know, as a thought experiment, you know, like, how are you going to explain to an uplifted animal how you treated its ancestors? Should that be guiding our, you know, the way we treat animals today is sort of thinking about how we're going to have to explain our actions to their descendants uh, tomorrow? There's that moment in uh, one of Arthur C. Clarke's books, Childhood's End, you know, where they, you know, the overlords basically make everyone feel the same pain as the bulls. And until that moment, I'd never even really thought much about bullfighting as a kid. I was six or seven years old reading Childhood's End, and I'd seen pictures of bullfighting and thought about bullfighting, but I'd never really considered the fact that, oh, yeah, those spears probably hurt. Um, the other thing I was kind of thinking was that should there be some sort of representation for future generations? Well, that's, a, that's an interest. That's a very cool science fictional concept. The ghost of my children future. I mean, if we have a one-person, one-vote system, right, and presumably, hopefully, there will be many, many, many succeeding generations, so shouldn't the representatives for future generations so massively outweigh our representation that we don't actually have a say in anything, you know? <laughs> but it does raise the idea of, of what are the guiding principles for a working and sustainable and thoughtful long-term civilization. We seem to be in a situation now where we only think in terms of quarterly reports and we're thinking only three or four months ahead. And we don't seem to have a lot of built in abilities to think, you know, 50 to 100 years ahead or longer, which is one of the reasons why dealing with some of these larger problems is troubling. Well, and I think that that's why everyone should be forced to read lots of science fiction growing up because, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right. I mean, like you, you essentially can't, I mean, sort of the first step to becoming a decent human being is thinking about what the world is going to be like outside of your personal context. And you, you essentially can't read science fiction without thinking, you know, if you're reading a story set at a hundred years in the future, you have to be really dense not to think about what the world is going to be like 100 years in the future. And that's already, you know, you're sort of already being carried outside your own personal concerns. A lot of the scenarios we've been talking about are scenarios in which humanity conquers nature. But there's like a whole subgenre of stories in which humanity kind of destroys itself and nature kind of reclaims the world. And so just a couple examples I I have here, you know, 12 Monkeys has a great first scene in which, you know, humanity has been wiped out by this super virus and uh, the survivors are living these bunkers underground. And one of the guys, the main character, puts on a uh, decontamination kind of suit and is wandering around the city and there's just wild animals uh, walking, you know, up and down the steps of these big buildings and stuff like that. One of the few things I liked about the Will Smith uh, I Am Legend movie was uh, I did really like this, uh, the way they did this image of a future Manhattan where grass is growing and deer are running around and, you know, there are no people. Uh, I thought that was really striking. I, I think it's like contemplating 
an entire civilization's mortality is awe-inspiring. It's sort of that that uh, one poem, you know, that my, I am Ozymandias, look upon my works, ye mighty in despair, and it's just like a faded old, you know, monument in the desert that you stumble across by accident. And it's sort of like, yeah, not so much, buddy. I think it's like the TV or, you know, movie and, and literature equivalent of that guy who was supposedly, you know, supposed to whisper to the Roman em- emperors as they're being paraded around, you know, for their triumph. And he was supposed to whisper like, you know, this doesn't mean crap. You're going to die. You're just an emperor. It's all nothing. You know, and I think sometimes that this is the literary equivalent of that, or this is like our civilization, you know, our civilization's voice that's whispering that, like, you know, this doesn't mean anything. All these skyscrapers, these bridges, all of this, if we were to all fall apart, you know, whether by our own actions or by something completely different, all of these works, all of this would eventually just disappear. And you ain't nothing. <laughs> well, like, there's a book I wanted to talk about a little bit by George R. Stewart called Earth Abides, which is just a fantastic book. But the, the premise is that there's some sort of virus that wipes out, say, 90% of humanity. And I think the main character, there's something like he had received uh, rattlesnake antivenom at some point in the past or something, and that protects him from this. But essentially, you know, all the infrastructure is still there, all the power plants are still there, but there's just this critical lack of people who know what they're doing to, to keep it all running. And so, you know, the power goes out and there aren't enough people who know how to fix it and the water eventually stops running and nobody knows how to fix it. And so humanity just kind of regresses back to kind of hunter-gatherer society. And the main character, uh, there's this there's sort of the town library and he's devoted himself to protecting it. and you know, just sees it as, you know, this is what's going to allow humanity to uh, rebuild. And at the end, he's an old man sitting on the steps of this library, which nobody pays much attention to anymore. And his grandkids are hunting with bows and arrows. And he realizes that this process of rebuilding is going to take much longer than this library, than these library books are going to uh, stick around for. There's another story, and I, I, I don't know the name of the person who wrote it, but it's about a guy who's responsible for painting the gantries of the uh, space shuttle gantry in Cape Canaveral. And it's the same sort of situation where everyone else around him is sort of like, dude, we're hunting deer with bows and arrows, like give it up, you know? And he's just like, I've got to keep the gantries, you know, rust proofed with this paint. And I, I don't remember how it ends. I think he either runs out of paint or something like that. And it's just sort of like, that's it. You mentioned uh, at the beginning about how there was this whole raft of ecological films in the 60s that we talked about, and then it kind of went away, and it's not clear it's ever really come back. And I wonder if part of that is that those stories had so much impact because no one had ever really seen anything like that before. Whereas, I I was thinking about this because I I watched um, The Book of Eli recently. And which actually I thought was fairly good, but um, I, I feel like my my watching it now, like the feeling I had going to that sort of post-apocalyptic world, was like a feeling of sort of warm and fuzzy familiar recognition. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, this reminds me of Mad Max, you know. Whereas I feel like that's a completely different thing than the people who watch those. It was like scary and new in the '60s, whereas to me, it's like I grew up watching stories like this. It's familiar and comforting almost. Yeah, yeah. 
every time somebody uh you know puts on like football pads <laughs> black leather it's kind of like oh yeah cool okay cool i guess there was just one more short story i have on my list that i really wanted to mention this is a story by gene wolf and <laughs> the premise is it starts out in, the, in this totally ecologically devastated future and there's this really really rich guy and he kind of picks somebody up in his uh limousine <laughs> i think i know the one you're talking about yeah, and he wants to tell him, you know, he has something, he's sort of like the uh, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, he has this story that he has to tell, and it's about how he got to be so rich. And so when, you know, endangered species had, had reached a critical point where they were almost all about to die, this guy had used his minor fortune to, to buy up a lot of the last, you know, the last lion, the last zebra, whatever. And his idea was he was going to have sort of a theme park where you could be the one where he would sort of auction off the right to sponsor the last living, whatever, last living lion. So, you know, your name would be there as the person who's keeping alive the last living lion. And it was a total bust. Nobody, uh, nobody wanted to participate. And it looked like he was all, it was all going to go out of business. And so he finally, he came up with another idea, which was he was going to auction off the right to hunt and kill the last zebra, the last lion. And that's what he did. And that made him fantastically wealthy <laughs> i think about that story a lot that's a really sort of sad commentary on human nature it's the kind of story where i'm like wow i hope that's not true but i sort of fear that it is you fear that it is but here's one of the the interesting things which is that sometimes we can do the right thing by doing things counterintuitively which is that reservations in africa that try to just preserve the animals and don't allow any hunting and try to be sort of like little, you know, zoos struggle. We know they struggle. They struggle with poachers. They struggle to exist. But parks that allow hunting of the animals and, and charge a crap load of money to uh, ship in, you know, wealthy Westerners to hunt for an animal and then ship them back out are able to afford the uh, money to sort of breed animals and have a larger uh, amount of acres and to have more protection. And so as a result, those actually tend to be uh, more successful from what I understand. It, this could be, this is secondhand information on my part, but I was talking to someone who said that those parks that, that were run that way and are run that way have actually been able to make more money, thus enabling them to protect more of the animals. And so if we focus on the, the darker side of human nature, and account for it, then you're much more able to build a system that can maybe anticipate and deal with that. Uh, I'd just add that, uh, you know, we haven't uh, talked much about Paolo Bacigalupi in this, in this uh, episode, but obviously he's an important writer um, to anyone who's interested in uh, ecological science fiction. We did uh, feature him as a guest in episode two. So if you are interested um, in the subject, I would also recommend listening to that episode um, and uh, checking out his collection, Pump Six, and other stories, and also uh, The Wind-Up Girl, his, uh, his novel, which won all the awards. All the awards, yes. And his young adult novels, too, though, are also dealing with ecological themes and a really, really cool shipbreaker and uh, its sequel, The Drowned Cities. So you've actually you've collaborated with Paolo. Has that uh, influenced your outlook or your writing at all? Paolo reminds me that I first met him at a World Fantasy Con, and and we both immediately I started uh, talking to him about sailing ships because one of my frustrations with post-apocalyptic 
uh, futures. And actually, the story I have in John's anthology Wastelands is about the same frustrations. I've had it since like 2002, I think, which is that uh, I, I grew up with sailboats and sail. And so for me, the idea that like the moment you lose oil, transportation just ceases to exist is so ludicrous to me because, you know, I grew up not using that much oil to sail around, you know, parts of the world. And most of my friends, a lot of friends I had when I grew up had sailed huge amounts of the world without using any oil whatsoever. So I, anyone who will listen, I usually bend their air and explain that, like, you know, what's really cool to me about, you know, a, a, an oil collapse is the fact that, of course, it would be a new age of sail. And the, the collaboration was two novellas called The Alchemist and The Executionist, and where we kind of posit a, a high fantasy. We, neither of us had done like a, high fan, a large high fantasy project, and we wanted to play with it. And we wanted to play with some of the themes that we've been talking about during this whole interview, which is you know, post-apocalyptic uh, landscapes, um, resource management, resource failure, and the resource of, in a high fantasy environment, of course, being magic. So we kind of came up with the idea of uh, magic having a side effect, a pollutant side effect called a bramble, which just sort of, you know, every time you cast a spell, a little bit of magic byproduct is this bramble that shows up everywhere and, and kind of chokes. And, and so like whole civilizations have fallen because bram they've just used magic so indiscriminately that bramble just chokes everything and, and just kills everything off. I'm so lucky in my life to have, you know, a large group of friends who are constantly amazing me with stuff that they know and have learned that they they're willing to share with me. So one always stands on the shoulders of giants and I've been lucky to have a lot of really cool friends uh, who are extremely bright that I can steal lots of ideas from. <laughs> All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Toby, thanks for being on the show. Hey, it was a lot of fun being on the show. Thanks for having me. And thanks so much to Kim Stanley Robinson for being our guest today. If you want to check out any of the books and stories that we just mentioned, head on over to our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on the reading list link. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment If you enjoyed this program tell your friends If you didn't enjoy it tell no one Thank you for listening